Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. My guest today is Eric Jensen, Assistant Professor of History at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. Eric, thank you so much for being on Historically Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, we're talking a couple weeks before Salem, Massachusetts' most important holiday, which is Halloween. Quite so. (laughs) And uh, this podcast will hopefully drop on Halloween. It's on a Wednesday this year. And so it's appropriate then that we are going to be discussing civilization's greatest monsters, um, the most important monsters perhaps in history. And that's not the vampire. It's not the werewolf. It's not the zombie even. It's the barbarian. So I was pleased to learn um, for years I've been telling uh, classes uh, about the origin of the word barbarian and I had had it firmly classified under too good to check. Um, so, but you confirm it. So where does the word barbarian come from? It's, it is, as I've been saying, onomatopoeia, if you're Greek. Yes, it seems to be uh, an expression of what foreign languages sounded like to early Greeks. That sounded like a sort of incomprehensible babble. And so this word barbaros in Greek has the original meaning of a person who does not speak Greek. And every other meaning that has been attached to this word comes on later, but that original meaning is a linguistic one. A person who does not speak Greek sounds to a monolingual Greek speaker like they are just making an incomprehensible babble that sounds like bar, bar, bar. (laughs) And so they were called barbaros. So the um, the title of your book is Barbarians in the Greek and Roman World. And uh, as we were discussing before the podcast, um, as I've been thinking about it, barbarian is one of the most important concepts for thinking, for one's own thinking about what civilization is and what my civilization is and what it is not. And already, um, as you've just indicated, there's a linguistic meaning to barbaros. It means the person who is not doesn't speak Greek. So it's going to be confusing to people that read your book that you, in in some ways, uh, but barbarian is also a very historicized, historicist concept. Explain what I mean when I say that for people who don't know what historicism is. Well, the idea of barbarian is an inherently relational one. Yes. No one is a barbarian sitting at home alone. We only are barbarians in relation to other people, and other people are only barbarians in relation to us. The idea of a barbarian is someone who is not us. And so the idea of a barbarian necessarily reflects back to us who we think we are. Yes, that's the fascinating thing that we say. So yes, your book is really about us. Yeah, your book is really about who the Greeks and Romans think they are. And by implication, who we think we are when we think about barbarians. 
Yes, necessarily reflects back on us. And this is an idea that has been used by many different people in many different ways for many different purposes. Mm -hmm. Often it reflects back on the people who use it in a way that reinforces their ideas of who they are. But it can also be used to question their ideas of who they are and to challenge the idea of who those who call others barbarian believe themselves to be. Now, it, this is a very long-ranging concept. I was reminded just a couple days ago that um, Teddy Roosevelt, and this is, a, uh, this is a very progressive idea, I mean, progressive era, American idea, progressive era, in many ways, European idea, about the need to be both to preserve the barbarian virtues, to be both a gentleman and a barbarian. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that near the end. Um, you have some interesting comments at the beginning and at the end of the book about the, sort of the concept of the barbarian for us. But let's start out with this concept of, of, of who we are and or who, who the Greeks thought they were. So what's a Greek? That seems to be a, a rather capacious answer to that question. What's a Greek? Well, like any other assertion of an ethnic identity, Greekness was an idea that was open to question and that changed over time and that adapted to serve the different needs of the people who were using it. So there were certain ideas that the people who called themselves Greeks tended to come back to. They would say, we are Greeks because we speak the Greek language, or we are Greeks because we are descendants of an ancestor whom we call Hellen, and hence we are the Hellenes, or the Greeks. Or they would sometimes say, we are Greeks because we have culture and we have education and we have knowledge that sets us apart from the rest of the world. But these were ideas that could be played off against one another, that could be argued one way or another to serve different cultural, political, literary, and philosophical needs. The idea of the barbarian was equally flexible. People could write about and think about barbarians as a way of setting off what they meant to be Greek just as flexibly. So let's think about the Iliad a little bit, um, where most of our engagement, um, certainly our literary engagement with Greece always begins. Um, what's the, the term, is, the term Greek is not used by Homer, is it? No, the term Greek or Hellenic, we know it is not used by Homer. He refers to the people that he would identify as Greeks, as protagonists, as Achaeans, or as Danaeans, or as Argives, more or less interchangeably. And what does that mean? What do those mean for him? Uh, the identity of the Greeks is an interesting issue hmm. in the Iliad. Clearly, they are different sides of the war. There is the Greek side of the war, and there is the Trojan side of the war. But you'll notice as you read the Iliad that there is very little that separates these two sides. Mm -hmm. They clearly communicate with one another with no language barriers visible. They worship the same gods. They practice the same rituals. They understand the same social conventions. Homer in the Iliad presents the world as one that is almost unified. His Greeks and his Trojans are only very slightly different from one another. They are effectively the same people, just on opposite sides of the war. And that's an interesting contrast to the Odyssey, mm -hmm. 
where there is a much sharper sense of a world out there that is non-Greek, mm-hmm. that is alien, that is different, that is often threatening and frightening. So is the Cyclops a barbarian? The Cyclops is certainly an example of a barbarian in some sense. Now, in the original sense, he can't be a barbarian because he speaks Greek. He speaks perfectly clearly. <laughs> He's a to son of a god, too, right? Is it? Yes. Yeah. He fits perfectly within the Greek schemas of genealogy and descent. Mm-hmm. But he is culturally different. Mm-hmm. He does not recognize the same cultural norms that Odysseus and his followers do. That he does not take proper care of his guests. In fact, he eats them. Mm-hmm. And this is something you are not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so we see there what we can recognize as a barbarian character, a character who does not follow the same cultural norms that we, the audience, understand and respect. Now, it might be easy for us to see that because he's also a giant with one eye in the middle of his forehead or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other um, really wonderful example of barbarians, which is I find very hard to convince uh, students of, are Penelope suitors who do speak, who are all, do speak Greek, but who have violated all social norms in ways that are difficult for a, an audience of modern 20-year-olds to understand. Yes, in a way that is not quite so overt as the Cyclops, but mm-hmm. yes, they transgress those cultural norms as well, and that they are staying in Odysseus' house, eating up his food, eating up his wealth, not following the culturally accepted norms of how you are supposed to behave when you are wooing a woman. Mm-hmm. Like when you come right down to it, the Odyssey is basically a list of things you shouldn't eat. <laughs> it's true. You go explain that a little bit. <laughs> oh, so much of what's in the Odyssey has to do with eating. There is the Cyclops who eats his guests. There are the lotus eaters mm-hmm. who eat lotus and forget themselves. There is Kirke or Circe who serves food to her guests, but then also turns them into edible animals like pigs. Uh-huh. There's the cattle, telling that, the cattle of the sun. Yes. There's cattle the, of the sun. Yes. It's indeed the cattle of the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of this revolves around food, which is telling because that is so basic. Mm-hmm. The customs around food, what you eat and what you don't eat what you do to and for the people that you have broken bread with. These are very, very basic cultural norms. And to see so many people in that epic, so many characters violating these norms really sets them apart. And it's, and it's interesting that um, he, Homer does not conceive of, say, a different system of gods, um, so that the Cyclops is the son of Poseidon. Um, he's not the son of some other creature or some other figure. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have a different pantheon of gods uh, that I can recall or, or, or have ever um, read any interpretation of. Yet he can envision those different sorts of, of food and cultural customs as the, as the delineation of, 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 of cultural and civilizational markers. Yes, and this is very characteristic of the Greeks, that they tended to view other people's religious systems syncretically, mm-hmm. that they saw other people's religions as being a reflection of the same gods that they knew, simply adapted to different circumstances, in much the same way that, say, the Persians or the Egyptians speak a different language 
well, of course, they have a different word or different name for the god of the sun, but it's still the same sun. Mm -hmm. um, so, in suddenly, um, the <clears throat> the Hel excuse me, the Hellenes confront um, the power of Persia. Um, yet, of course, they have been under the Persian gravitational attraction, as it were, for quite some time. Um, how does Persianness um, affect what it means to be a Hellene? So, yes, Greece was connected to the world of the Persian Empire in many complicated ways and for a very long time. Now, of course, we think most characteristically of the interaction between the Greeks and the Persians in terms of the Greco-Persian Wars and the Persians' invasions of Greece. But those were really only very short interruptions into what was a much longer and more complicated interreligion. So we know of many Greeks who traveled in Persia, who lived in Persia, who found gainful employment in Persia. The Persian Empire drew in skilled workers from all around its territory and around its frontiers. We have examples of Greek doctors who served the Persian kings. We know of Greek dancers and entertainers and courtesans who were employed at the Persian court. We have in the Persian imperial archives at least one record which is written in Greek and several records which refer to Greek workers and their families receiving their pay. We have graffiti in Persian uh, stone quarries written in Greek by Greek stonemasons recording their names and their work. And so all of these interactions existed. At the same time, there was this military and political tension on the frontier, as there often is on the frontiers of empires, between the Greeks in mainland Greece and the Persian Empire, which wanted to exert authority in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, after the wars, we can see that the memory of the wars and the memory of those conflicts, the violence, the devastation in Greece is very, very strong in Greek culture. And that is a, a cultural touchstone to which the Greeks can always return. But once again, they use it for many different purposes. Uh, those who want to define Greekness as superior can do so by casting the Persians in an inferior light they apply onto the Persians a set of stereotypes about weakness and effeminacy and disorganization. On the other hand, we also see Greeks adopting lots of cultural ideas and trade goods that come from Persia and that become quite naturalized within the Greek world. We also know of individuals from Persia coming to Greece and living in Greece in much the same way that Greeks went and lived and worked in Persia. There's even examples of Greek city-states like Athens and Sparta making alliances with Persia or with individual Persians and bringing Persia in as a useful ally in their own internal conflicts. Greeks' relationship with Persia was always complicated, always in some ways difficult, and made more complicated by the fact of the war, 
but never simply black and white. So did Greeks refer to Persians as barbarians? Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. they did. In fact, in later Greek literature, after the period of the Greco-Persian Wars, the Persians become the barbarians par excellence. Mm -hmm. When Greek literature uses the word barbaros after the wars, it almost always means a Persian. Do, do Persians think of Greeks as barbarians? We have very little evidence for how Persians thought about the Greeks. And in fact, it's fair to say that the Persians hardly ever thought of the Greeks at all. Based on our Persia evidence, was at least. A, <laughs> yes, a large and powerful empire. Greece was a small, insignificant backwater. But there is the evidence that Persians employed Greeks. They imported Greek artisans to work on their uh, on the Persian palaces, to work in their um, workshops. There was some appreciation of Greek culture and Greek skills in Persia. Beyond that, it's very hard to say. Mm -hmm. Did they think of other people outside their empire as being barbaros? I mean, th those as inimical or outside their civilization in some uh, we, we have to, and we're getting, we're working our way towards almost a metaphysical idea of what barbarian means, but as even as outside or a threat to their civilization. Well, the Persian Empire had an ideology of imperial expansion, mm -hmm. which justified the expansion of Persian rule as the need to bring the world into a state of harmony and stability under the rule of the Persian king. Mm -hmm. And so naturally we have to expect that along with that, there are ideas about the outside as being either dangerous and in need of control mm -hmm. or open to being managed better than it was at the time. Right. I don't think it's possible to have an imperial state that doesn't have some view of what is beyond its own borders. No. But this is simply not something that the Persians wrote about very much, at least not in ways that has survived. Yeah, but if we, if the idea, the ideology is to bring things into harmony, then obviously you think you, you believe that certain areas are under disharmony or they're in discordant and need to be harmonized. Um, so yes, yeah, yeah. The Persians did write about their conquest of other peoples, like the Babylonians, as being necessary to restore harmony and balance within the human world and between the human world and the divine. So we should probably imagine that they, they held similar ideas about other peoples as well. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, touch on a, a very interesting, uh, related to the Persian Wars, but also related to a, a very, I think, a very powerful mythic idea of the barbarian. And that's uh, what appears in the Parthenon Frieze. Let's talk, talk about the Parthenon Frieze for just a little bit. Um, it's uh, still debated what all those things are on the on the frieze of the Parthenon, but one shows a war between uh, Athenians and the centaurs. What is the importance of that um, for this discussion of, of civilization and barbarism? Now, the Parthenon in Athens is a tremendously important monument, and it is a monument that is very much freighted with a weight of ideology. It was created in a later generation 
after the Greco-Persian Wars, and in particular after Athens had experienced invasion and destruction by the Persians. So the idea of Athens rising anew and becoming this glorious example of Greekness was important in how the Athenians thought about their place in the world in those generations. And those ideas are expressed very clearly in the decoration of the Parthenon. And they're expressed through mythic analogs. And there are four mythic stories that have been identified in various parts of this decoration. Um, there is the battle between gods and giants. There is the battle between Greeks and Amazons. There's a battle between Greeks and centaurs, and there's a battle between Greeks and Trojans. And each one of these mythic battles, in some way, stands in for how the Athenians thought about their relationship to the Persians. So with, for instance, Amazons and centaurs, we have images of disorder, of chaos, wildness, things that should not exist human beings combined with animals or women who are warlike and powerful. And, and From I guess, the Athenian point of view, yeah, yeah, these are things that should not exist. Right, yeah. And and perhaps even have, according to at least one legend, right, have self-mutilated themselves. There's another. Yes. Yeah. Um, precisely. And, yeah. So these, this, the centaur is an interesting figure, though, um, in terms of the barbarian, isn't it? Um, since it is, uh, it is a, a very effective representation of the beast that lives within the human. Yeah, it expresses this idea of something that is human-like and not quite human, mm -hmm. something that has a head and a face and hands and can talk and interact like a human, and yet it is not quite human. And that is uh, relatable to the idea of the barbarian, or some ways of using the idea of the barbarian as something that looks human and yet does not measure up to our ideas of what a human is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and some, and and it has further power, I think, by the idea that some centaurs like Chiron um, can be noble and elevated and, and brilliant and teach the sons of heroes. Um, yes. Yeah. And, we see there the same complexity. Yeah. And yet then they can also become totally dominated by, what would we say, by the belly, um, by the by passion rather than mm -hmm. reason. Yes. That they are driven by their passions. Yeah. And the way that they are depicted on the Parthenon very much plays on these ideas. You see the centaurs fighting against the Greeks, you'll see the centaurs are wild and emotional and simply swinging their fists and hooves as fast as they can. And the Greeks have self-control and they are fighting with good wrestling and boxing form hmm. that they may be engaged in this violent struggle, but they're doing so in a thoughtful and self-controlled way. Hmm. And that was another important part of the Athenian sense of themselves. Yeah, they're using martial arts. Not They're not just brawling. They're... Exactly. Actually, actually engaging in martial art. Um, so this is all much, very much complicated when a young chippy um, kid who should have been spanked more often by his tutor uh, conquers, <laughs> the, the, conquers the Persian Empire. Um, how does this yet further complicate the idea of Greek and barbarian? So uh, 
even before we get to that uh, sure. young kid who needed some better discipline conquering the Persian Empire, we have the rise of Macedonia. Sure. We are, of course, talking about Philip II and his son, Alexander the Great. And Macedonians are, or at least had been to a previous generation, barbarians. The status of the Macedonians was complicated. Yeah, okay. That it, it, it seems that they were not generally regarded as being Greek by most of the Greeks. They weren't quite And they yet there quite were. There. Yeah, go on. And yet, there were ways in which they did seem Greek. Many Greeks looked at the Macedonians as a kind of reflection of an earlier state of Greek civilization. They identified the way that the Macedonians lived as being something like the way Homer described his heroes. And there had been some people who made the case for Macedonians being Greek. And there were Macedonians who themselves made the case for themselves being Greek. But this does become more complicated when the Macedonians conquer the Greeks. And suddenly the Greeks have to wrestle with the fact that they are being ruled by these people about whom they have certain doubts. And it's not surprising then that Alexander's big project as king was to go and conquer the Persian Empire. For one thing, as they say about bank robbers, that's where the money was. That was the center of power in the world at the time for him to conquer, but also because it was a lot easier to get the Greeks on board with hating the Persians than it was to get them on board with liking the Macedonians. Mm -hmm. So the war against Persia was a cause in which a lot of Greeks could get on board. So but this leads to further complications because once he's conquered this territory, Alexander has to rule it. Mm -hmm. And pragmatically speaking, what makes the most sense is to continue to rule it the same way the Persians did, mm -hmm. adopting a lot of Persian traditions and forms, something that already happened in the Macedonian kingdom. The Macedonian kings had already learned from the Persian example how to rule their own kingdom. But this does not sit very well with a lot of Alexander's followers. And there are certain incidents in his life where this comes into question. And one of the most telling is the murder of Cletus. Okay. So Cletus, yes, Cletus was one of Alexander's companions, very close to him. He, in fact, personally saved Alexander's life in the very first battle that he fought when they invaded the Persian Empire. But after they had finished the conquest, there was, we're told, one night a, a big drinking party. Everyone was having a bit too much wine, perhaps speaking a bit too freely. And Cletus turned to Alexander and said, what do you think you're doing? You have become the thing we came here to destroy. You're living like a Persian king. You're dressing like a Persian king. You've got Persians working in your throne room. And Alexander was on the point of getting into a fight with him. Some cooler heads intervened, sent Cletus out of the room. And Cletus showed up again later on and started haranguing Alexander again. Alexander grabbed a spear, threw it at Cletus, and struck him dead. This story is one that people at the time and for many generations afterwards told and retold about Alexander to try to make the point that something had gone wrong here. Mm -hmm. What had, what, what were they seeing as having gone wrong? I mean, other than that he killed someone who saved his life, which is definitely, um, you know, bad juju for everybody involved. Yes. The suggestion was that, that Alexander had let this power go to a head, that mm -hmm. he was, 
starting to exhibit the signs of hubris, this characteristic flaw of the tragic hero, where he believed that he was greater than human. He believed that the rules did not apply to him, that he had conquered Persia, but then Persianness itself had conquered him. Mm-hmm. He, he become, had become the thing he set out to destroy. He'd become a centaur. He'd become a centaur. He had lost that Greek quality. Mm-hmm. I know, so he's, he's, given the, he's given himself up to his appetites. So it's, and it's, at the same time, there were those who would doubt whether he ever had Greekness to begin with, right. being a Macedonian. Well, that's a kind of an excuse. To yes. be sure. Yeah. Um, now let's move the uh, focus to Rome. Um, and yeah, it, it's interesting. I just uh, came across a line um, in another book I'm reading for hopefully a future podcast uh, where I think it's Livy complains about all the new people the foreigners moving into Rome. Um, and uh, the author notes that actually Livy was correct at this period. This is, I think, in the 130s. Um, there are, are lots of new buildings, and uh, even the uh, forensics show that lots of new people are moving into Rome. So there's a way in which um, being Roman, even for Livy, as late as Livy, I forget when he's writing, what's the first century? I think it's maybe juvenile. You mean? I'm not. Yeah, maybe it's juvenile. I think it was pretty sure it was he was quoting Livy, but um, first let's mm-hmm. say first there's someone in first century, um, first century under the under Augustus's um, rule, um, is still has an idea of being Roman is being from the city, even though the Republic had long before that expanded to a much greater extent in the Empire to even greater extent by the time he was writing. Um, so there's a very, there's a deep ethnic chauvinism amongst Romans, and yet there is a legal framework for something else. So that needs to be teased apart a little bit. What does it mean to be a Roman uh, other than being obviously from the city? Um, but what else does it mean to be a Roman? Romanness was a bit different than Greekness. It was equally complicated, equally up for debate and reinterpretation. But Rome, as an expanding empire, interacted with the world in quite a different way than the Greeks. The Greeks interacted with the world primarily as merchants, as traders, as travelers, as professionals who would go abroad to sell their services. Rome interacted with the world as a conquering empire. And one of the secrets of Rome's success was that Rome did not simply conquer Rome incorporated that those who were outside Rome could be brought in and could become Roman. But this also leads to a certain amount of resistance and backlash from those who are already on the inside and already count themselves as Romans. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we can see that parallel with the expansion of Roman power and control, there is an expansion of Roman chauvinism. So that by the 4th century, mm-hmm. we have people from Gaul, which was one of Rome's conquests and the late Republic, are now calling themselves Romans and asserting their Roman identity and using this Roman identity as a, as a standard to assert their primacy and to keep out the new people who are coming in, like the Franks and the Goths. 
uh, Rome's experience of the outside world is always filtered through the facts of imperial expansion. Hmm. So is being what so so Romanitas, what does that mean? Romanitas simply means Romanness. But it's this idea that was really coming together in the period of the late Republic and say the, the first century BCE, when Rome was grappling with the problems of being a Mediterranean-wide empire. And this idea of Romanitas was really being developed and promoted by writers and thinkers of this period as a way to sort of set the standards of who is really an insider, who belongs with us, who has measured up to our standards. Hmm. There were certain ideas that were typically incorporated within Romanitas. So the idea of gravitas, seriousness, someone who is capable of responding seriously and thoughtfully and with self-control to serious situations. There's the idea of pietas, which means respect for social hierarchy. That you treat those above you with respect and you treat those below you with generosity. As the idea of virtus, or courage, the ability to face something frightening and still make maintain control of yourself, to not be driven into panic by something that is frightening. And like with Greekness, these ideas of Romanitas, they could be discussed, they could be debated, they could be challenged, they could be reinterpreted. And it was this act of reinterpreting and discussing and debating who is a Roman and who has measured up to these qualities, that is a big part of how people from the fringes of the empire could make their way into the middle and start to assert a place in the center of Roman life. Hmm. Let's talk about Tacitus a little bit, and then perhaps the, um, not really his contemporary, but a little bit before him, the Apostle Paul, because they both have, um, they, I think they, they both shed light in their way upon um, a, the problem of the external, but also of the internal barbarian. Um, Tacitus uh, has quite a lot to say about the people outside the empire um, in various places, in both uh, Agricola, in his uh, his little um, biography or history of his father-in-law. Would that be right, father-in-law? Um, yes. And yes. then, and then also in his um, in his his observations on Rome. So, what's how would you characterize uh, what Tacitus says about those outside Rome? Well, Tacitus is the grumpy old man of Roman historiography. Mm-hmm. He was politically pessimistic. He believed that Rome had lost its native virtue, that accepting the rule of emperors was giving in to corruption. And that once the Romans had taken that step and had given in to the corruption of imperial rule, they opened themselves up to corruption of all other kinds. And he looked outward at the world. He looked at the Britons in the Agricola and in even more detail at the Germans in the Germania. And he saw in them people who 
did not measure up to his standards of civilization. He is quite clear about this. Mm -hmm. He thinks they are dirty, smelly, messy, violent drunkards <laughs> who he would not trust to carry a pot from one side of the room to the other. <laughs> and yet, these are people who have not accepted the rule of an emperor. They have not been corrupted in that way. They have held on to something that the Romans have lost. And interestingly, it shows up in the ability to perceive truth. Mm -hmm. One of the most telling incidents comes in the Agricola, where Tacitus is imagining a battle between Romans and Caledonians, or we would say Scots, in northern Britain. And like a good ancient writer, he has invented a good speech for each of the general to give to their troops beforehand. Not just a good of speech, has, but a brilliant speech. Let's say. A brilliant speech. Of course, he has no, uh, had no way of knowing no, but what a Caledonian a... leader said to his followers, but this is what Tacitus imagined a Caledonian leader would say. Yeah. And his most telling line is, uh, the Romans make a wasteland and they call it peace. Mm. This is not the only time in Tacitus' writing where he points to either barbarians being able to correctly name what the Romans have done or the Romans failing to name what they have done. The naming being, well, just as it is in, say, Genesis and the Hebrew tradition and the Roman, the ability to name being the first step towards wisdom. Um, yes. The, the inability to name being the first step towards delusion and foolishness. Yes, if you cannot name it, then you cannot conceive of it. You cannot yeah. think about it. Right. So the Romans this have been is, so deluded yes. they cannot name mm -hmm. what they do. But the barbarians yes. the barbarians are all those things, but they can see clearly. But they can see clearly. You put Tastus' writings together, and you can see that he has a certain idea of how societies work. This is an idea that is based on earlier Roman and Greek traditions. There's a sense of a rise and a fall. You start with people who are in a basic state of nature, that they are simple, they're uncultured, they don't have any sophistication, and yet they are pure, they're virtuous. That virtue gives them the strength to become successful over other people. As they do so, they acquire wealth, they acquire sophistication and knowledge, and eventually they reach a high point where they still have their ancient purity and virtue and strength, but they have reached a height of sophistication and knowledge. But then things start to go downhill they become lost in sophistication. They become taken in by luxury and the love of comfort and softness. And so they give in to these things and they lose those ancient traditional virtues. And Tastus sees the Romans as being on the downside of this peak. The Romans are on the way down and there's really no way to stop it. Whereas there are other people out there in the world, like the Germans, who haven't gotten to the peak yet, but they are on their way there. It's such an important way when you describe that. It's such an important way that we think about, I think, barbarians to this day. Um, you begin by <laughs> talking about Conan, uh, the barbarian. Um, and that, of course, uh, from his creator, was it 
Robert Howard, I forget. Um, but in the early, I, I believe so. Yeah, Robert Howard, and and the quote I think I made from Teddy Roosevelt about being a, a gentleman and barbarian. There's the idea that it's right from Tacitus. It's it's right out of the the template has been set by Tacitus. Yes, yes, Conan is very much the the cultural descendant of Tacitus and barbarians. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, uh, the Tacitus is also saying something about self-critical. The Romans have themselves became barbarians. The Romans have become centaurs. Um, he's he grows up during or he, he's in manhood during the reign of Diocletian. Um, no, Domitian. I'm sorry, Diocletian's much like Domitian, Domitian uh, Vespasian's second son, who is um, well, he's a barbarian who's an emperor. I mean, he's a he's a man. Well, anyway, go. Could you develop that? Yes, I mean, Tacitus he uses the way he writes about the barbarians as the basis for a critique of the Romans themselves. And in particular, he writes about Domitian, this emperor on whom he grew up, as someone who is perhaps even further along on this slide down back into barbarism, in that he has lost the ability to control his passions Mm. and his desires. He's jealous of others. He won't share his power. He... Uh, is wallowing in luxury and the desire for acclaim and praise, has lost some of these basic virtues, self-control, the ability to behave responsibly, to treat others as they ought to be treated. What um, we're, we, we um, briefly now, we're nearing the end of our, our time, but the, of course, in our um, imagination, Rome then ends under a sort of flood of barbarians. It's just hordes of horses and, I don't know, painted bodies and people with really mustaches and neck rings sort of just swarming <laughs> over, um, you know, marble palaces and temples. It didn't quite happen like that. Um, what would you want people to take away uh, from the barbarian invasions, quote, unquote, Well, there's no question that there were people coming into the Roman Empire late in its period, but there was nothing new about that. Rome had always been open to outsiders. That was one of its great strengths. It's not that the people coming in changed, that their behavior changed or that they were coming in different ways or in greater numbers. It's that the way the Romans responded to people changed. Rome in the third century CE went through a very difficult period of economic and political chaos. And people responded to this period of great hardship and difficulty by turning inwards, by becoming more locally self-reliant, by cutting off some of their contacts to the wider empire. And this changed the way in which people looked at the arrival of new people who wanted to take their place among the Romans as many people before them had done. So we see a change in the way people write about barbarians or foreign peoples, that this idea that Rome is ever expanding and that Rome has a destiny to take in the whole world and bring everyone under its rule, that goes away. And what takes its place is the idea of Rome as besieged, Rome as failing, Rome as falling under the waves of these new people. 
who again are not all that different from the new people a hundred years earlier. Mm-hmm. But the Romans, those who are already inside and already identify themselves as Romans, become very resistant to doing what Romans had always done and finding ways for these new people to become incorporated into the empire. And so we end up with people who have lived under the rule of the Roman emperors for generations, if not centuries, who still are not being accepted as Romans. And I think we can understand at that point that they cease to attach any value to calling themselves Romans. When these people advance into positions of power and begin to exercise more authority over the areas where they settle, they're no longer interested in maintaining the idea of a Roman Empire. And once the Roman Empire no longer has a value for people, then there's really nothing to hold it together anymore. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there are earlier signs of this. You quote a, uh, at the beginning of a later chapter, a, a very uh, poignant conversation between two rabbis about the achievements of the Romans which seems to be right out of the life of Brian. Um, what have the Romans ever done for us? This is indeed the original of what have the Romans ever done for us? Exactly. Um, and so yeah. these uh, these Jews, uh, the Rabbi Shimon uh, answered, all that they have made, they made for themselves. They built marketplaces to set harlots on them, baths to rejuvenate themselves, bridges to levy tolls for them. Um such people are dangerous. Um, they are uh, like a, an infestation within the empire. Um, the Christians who are under, by the Roman standard, I mean, we're getting back to Homer, they refuse to be part of uh, the pantheon. Uh, they refuse to match their god up with a Roman god. Romans regard them as atheists. So these are another type of sort of barbarians, uh, people that um, refuse to be part of the culture who are nevertheless uh, within the empire, within that sphere. As much as Romanness was an expandable idea, and many people found it valuable to assert their place within the empire by claiming a kind of Romanness for themselves, there were also always those who rejected the idea of Romanness, who were hesitant about it, who would assert it only under certain conditions, Hmm. who would claim it only when it was useful. You mentioned the case of St. Paul. Right. It's a person who asserts his Roman citizenship only when he is threatened with torture. Yeah, that's an accident. And other than that, he does not seem to have yeah. does not seem to have any interest in claiming the identity of Romanness. I had a professor who pointed out to me that's almost certainly that uh, whatever line it is, he said in Latin. Um, I, I think because that's a legal statement that you have to say in Latin, I believe. Uh, I am. Mm-hmm. A, yeah. Anyway. Yes. So. He's only interested in doing that. Um, I mean, he uses the trade networks. He uh, uses the law when it suits him. But obviously, um, most of the things he says about the rule of God in the world is incompatible, to put it mildly, with imperial ideology. I mean, you cannot read Colossians and know something about the Roman conception of the emperor and regarded as anything other than at least semi-treasonable. Yes. Romanness was a, a flexible idea. People had many different ways of expressing it. And yet there were things about Rome that were unacceptable 
to mm -hmm. some people who lived under its rule. Mm -hmm. The and there are certain people on the outside. I mean, I I guess we could debate about the Huns, but it does seem to me that there are certain of these tribes who are really interested in just killing people and breaking things. Um, the uh, it was said of the Mongols, I think, by the Persians uh, a thousand years later that their goal was to turn the whole world into a place for grazing horses, which is a kind of a, a frightening image. Um, some of these um, tribes by 400 um, seem equally uninterested in becoming part of the Roman Empire or becoming Roma under Romanitas. Yeah, so we see that uh, this change in Roman culture, Romans are no longer welcoming to outsiders. It's understandable that the outsiders are no longer interested in being Roman. Mm -hmm. And yet, even there, we see some complicated cultural it's interactions. True. It's true, yeah. Uh, among the Huns, there is an account of um, that uh, at the Hunnish camp, there were Roman facilities, there were Roman amenities, there was a bathhouse. There were people who could speak Greek and who could communicate fluently in that language. We see Attila as leader of the Huns very um, uh, cleverly and keenly playing off different diplomatic uh, factions and political factions within the Roman Empire against one another to serve his own needs. Hmm. They were connected to the Roman world, even if they didn't want to be a part of it. So... You, I think, um, make it quite clear the the downside of conceiving of barbarians. Um, it is ethnic chauvinism. Um, what's the upside of imagining barbarians? Well, the, as I said, the idea of barbarian is flexible. There are certainly responses to the idea of outsiders that push them away mm -hmm. and that make them alien and different. But there are also wonderful examples of responses to the barbarian that are welcoming, that are mm -hmm. open, that recognize the existence and the reality and the importance of cultural difference without pushing away. Mm -hmm. I think of Herodotus, who wrote a history of the Greco-Persian Wars and some of the early ethnographic work describing this larger world that the Greeks knew. And he was fascinated by foreign peoples, and he thought there were many things about them to admire. He recognized that they were different, that they were not the same as him, that they did not do things the same way the Greeks did, and yet he found in them things to admire and things that perhaps the Greeks could learn from. Mm. One great example of this is the Scythians. The Scythians were semi-nomadic, horse-riding people who lived on the steppes of what is today southern Russia and Ukraine. And there are many things about the Scythians that Herodotus is very leery about. He doesn't like the way that they live. He doesn't like some of their religious customs. He doesn't like the way that they treat outsiders. And yet he sees them as this wonderful example of tenacity and resistance and the refusal to give in to foreign pressure, something that he thinks the Greeks should admire and can learn from. And so there are examples like this where the barbarian, yes, is different. We recognize those differences. And yet there are things about them that we ourselves want to learn from. 
So barbarian this, um, I don't know if we've I've already said this, um, it might have been before we started recording, um, is intimately related to understanding and the, the cultural boundaries that your, um, the guardrails that your civilization has set up. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't invite people in across uh, through the gate of the fence that you've established. Um, but you can't have a barbarian without recognizing your own difference. I, th- I think that's, that's to yes. some extent. Um, yes. And we've also got this very interesting idea that we've discussed um, with Tacitus, and I don't think can be thought about too much, about the internal barbarian, about the greatest threat to any um, civilization or culture being the people within it. Um, Plato doesn't talk about barbarians. He doesn't need to. He's got Alcibiades. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, he's got someone who's been trained up to the highest degree of civilization who just doesn't get it. He just doesn't understand what it's all about. He completely yes. misses the point of life. And he is, um, by the end of the symposium, it's so beautifully um, knitted together with what all of Plato's readers would have known about subsequent events. You see why Alcibiades is a danger to Athens. He's he's uh, he's a ticking time bomb within the, the democracy. Yes, yeah. The barbarian is a way that we reflect upon ourselves, and like Plato or like Tacitus, we can look within ourselves and see differences that are far more dangerous and far more alarming than the differences between ourselves and what is out there in the world. My guest today has been Eric Jensen. Uh, His book is Barbarians in the Greek and Roman World. And I hope uh, someday, Eric, you follow this up with uh, tracing the cultural concept of the barbarian up into the 21st century, because I think that would be fantastic. Thank you for being with us on Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program, and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 